0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode features the DGA Special Projects Committee's recent event, The Craft of the Director, Judd Apatow. The event was the sixth in this series of conversations with master filmmakers, that feature an in-depth discussion about the directing process, from pre-production through post. In addition to his recently released feature, The King of Staten Island, Mr. Apatow's directorial credits include the feature films The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, This Is 40, and Trainwreck. Episodes of the series Love, Crashing, Undeclared, Freaks and Geeks, and The Larry Sanders Show, and the documentary The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. Please enjoy Mr. Apatow's conversation with fellow director Jeremy Kagan in front of a virtual audience. Highlights from their discussion include Mr. Apatow's philosophy on directing comedy, the difficulty of cutting scenes from his movies, and how he is able to bring his features in on budget.
1: So I want to welcome uh, Judd Apatow to this Craft of series. Judd, thanks for being here.
2: Happy to be here. I'm trying to decide as a director if this light from the window is making it look better or worse. Am I blowing out or do I want to close the window a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> you are in like the Starship Enterprise. See, you are in a different space.
0: And, yeah, and I, and I can't decide.
1: Happening like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I've got- and there's a button on the Zoom
2: that says, Make you look better, right? There's like an appearance button, which I'm afraid to hit. I don't know what happens then. I don't know. Where
1: <laughs> it probably goes. changes you into somebody else. You'll become Gary yeah. Chandler. Or could be. One I of the things that, that in in, in the Shandling commentary of it on himself, he wrote. He wrote something that I wanted you to explore, like in the physics of this conversation, which was he said to be funny, you need be you need to be fast and deep. And I'm wondering how, just in the general, before we go specifically into the very specific crafts, how you respond to just that idea to be fast and deep. Does it mean something to you right now? And what does it mean?
2: Well, that, that leads to a dirty joke right away. Let me just say that. That's, <laughs> so that means right there, I wasn't fast and I wasn't deep. I just went for the dirty reaction to the fast and deep preference. Uh, I just got scared when you said fast and deep because I'm like, I don't think I'm actually that fast. And I tried to be as deep as I could be, but probably don't get that deep. So then I instantly fell into low self-esteem. Okay. <laughs> I went like,
1: I have to respond to this only because I know you said you wanted to make you want to make movies that are both uplifting and hopeful and that you like filth so you can go there. Yes, I mean, we're, exactly. We're yes, this. This is not. This is not going to be you know, rated by anybody but ourselves.
2: Well, I had a, you know, a quote that Seth Rogen likes to say, which is when we were making a movie, uh, I think it was when we were doing super bad. I said, more heart, less jizz. And that was how I described it. That's my version of Faster and Deeper is more heartless jizz. So these, these are all important things that I'm sure they, uh, they teach in the
1: finest film schools. <laughs> I have to be so no passionate <laughs> about it. Um, you know, one of the things that I was having fun with was looking at all the DVD extras on all of the films. Um, Obviously, I haven't seen the DVD extra on the King of Staten Island yet, but I suspect they're there. And I want to ask a very first question. What makes you cut a scene? Why are some of these scenes, which are, some of them are hysterical. I mean, the scene with Elizabeth Banks and Tubbin in in the the 40-year-old virgin is is totally hysterical. Why cut cut either parts of a scene or literally scenes? Yes.
2: Well, that scene you know, is in the movie, but there was a much longer version that really made us laugh. And as you know, I have issues with time. I have trouble letting go of things, and that's why my movies are a little bit longer than uh, other people's at times. But, you know, you try to be disciplined about what is on story, you know, what is necessary to develop a story and the characters and what's organic. And every once in a while, there's something that's so funny. You say, I, I just don't care. I have to put this in. Because it, it, it's too hilarious to leave out, uh, you know. Certain movies really don't want you to do that, and I I try not to. But there are always scenes that you debate whether or not you should lose them. You know, one that comes to mind is uh, in Funny People. There's there was a scene near the end of the movie where Adam goes back to work. So Seth and Adam get in a big fight. And now they're not friends anymore. And I wanted to show what happens when he goes back to work and how shallow it is and how unfulfilling it is. And so we shot this scene where he is shooting a movie about a guy who is in hot dog eating competitions, right? So he's doing this like really bad comedy about hot dog eating competitions, right? And uh and in the scene, Adam is trying to, you know, eat hot dogs uh in a competition right so that's the scene and i suddenly run in as the director of this terrible movie and i say adam can you do me a favor i really would like you to eat five hot dogs in one shot it's kind of a scorsese oneer and i would love it if you could eat five hot dogs in one shot and he's like i'm not eating five hot dogs i just had leukemia i'm not what are you talking about and i'm like what if we did it one time just one take. If you could do it once, that's all I need. But if I just want to really see that you can do this, you know, I want it to feel real that you really are a guy who's in hot dog eating competitions. And and Adam was like, well, you know, we're not doing that. So get me a bucket and you could do it with editing. Use angles and shots. You know, do, do it in the coverage. And I just keep begging him to do it. And it was such a weird but sad scene because he had lost his friend. He had lost the girl he loved, and now, like, his life feels so stupid. And ultimately, we cut it for time, and we weren't sure you needed that moment to, to get the journey. Maybe we get it seeing other aspects of what happens in the last 10 minutes. So sometimes you debate those forever. I mean, even now, I go, you know what? The highest testing version of that movie had that scene in, and it was five minutes longer. But it was long. The movie was real long. You know, it was about to kiss at 2.30. And there are nights I wake up and go, ah, the hot dog (laughs) eating competition scene. Because as a director, I'll never get a fresh view of the movie. I'll never see it the way someone sees it who doesn't know what's coming. I don't have that sense of mystery when I watch it. And these are the hard decisions with The King of Staten Island. We debated certain scenes for six months. There was a scene near the end of the movie where Pete Davidson uh, is asked, he asks Bill Burr, you know, what are you doing today? And they haven't really bonded that much yet. And he's like, I'm going to go do construction. And he's confused by that because he's like, I don't understand. He's like, well, I don't make enough money as a firefighter. So on my days off, I have to do construction. Uh, And then Pete says, well, aren't you supposed to see your kids on your days off? And he's like, yeah, but I got to feed my kids. There's the problem, right? And then you go to this construction site where half a dozen firefighters are building someone a new porch. And Pete does it with them. And it was supposed to be the moment where Pete understands how much he cares about his kids because he hadn't seen that before. And that maybe he is a good guy. Maybe he's not an asshole. Uh, look how hard all these firefighters work. In addition to risking their lives, they, they don't get paid enough. They have to do construction. Yeah. And it was in for a long time. And it, and it was a funny scene and very sweet. And then we were, we were like, I don't know if you need it. Maybe if it's gone, it's more impactful when Pete watches Bill Burr put out a fire. If they're not bonded yet. And it's in that moment, in watching it without the fire, he decides maybe Bill's a better guy than he thought.
1: Mm-hmm. And, it was, you know,
2: those are heartbreakers sometimes, but they make the movie better.
1: Because you know the movie so well, um, there really is the question. Um, and do you screen it for, let's say, friends first? Or do you test screen and how much... You know, if they say it's too long or if they say they don't like this particular scene or you're there and you're not hearing the laughter, how much does that go to determine you're saying, okay, this is where we're going to cut?
2: I I mean, for me, there's a very consistent process in post, which is I I show it mainly to my staff and a few friends, so maybe 30 people. And then we get in okay shape and we show it to 50 or 60 people. And that is sometimes almost a three hour cut. Like here's everything we got. And, and so certain people can see all of it before we make big decisions. And then we cut it down to something semi-manageable, do it for a hundred people. This is all just for me. The studio is not there. Wow. Then I have a unique situation with the studio, which is they allow me to do full focus groups, uh, tests with real audiences, without them there. They'll let me do one without them there. Because I always say, why don't you let me get close before you have to suffer through it? And so usually they don't come or maybe just my main executive who's so helpful uh, comes and, and helps. And we'll do that anywhere from three to five times with a real focus group.
1: What kind of questions when you're not, when you're there, I mean, are you the actual person that's asking the questions to this particular focus group? That's not the studio, but it's your group. What kind of questions are being asked? And what are you asking?
2: I'm saying to people that I respect, lay me out, don't hold back. What the hell just happened? What are you tracking? What, What do you make of it? Dramatically, is it working? Comedically, is it working? How did you experience this? And when you have people that you've worked with or or have been friends with for a long time, they feel comfortable telling you what's not working. That's the key. That you can't have a bunch of yes people there. And sometimes in those first three, I'll invite people that are my heroes. I'll ask you know James Brooks to look at a cut if he's available. I'll you know I always have my friends like you know Jake and Jonah Hill and and people like that come take a look at it. I I, I am not uh, embarrassed about begging anybody to come check out the movie. I I, I would like as many opinions as possible. Now, sometimes you, you get their opinion and you think, okay, well, they're pointing out something wrong, but the way they say to fix it is not correct. It's how they would fix it, and it would become their style. But they have pinpointed my problem, I had a very unique experience with this movie, which was that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson came to a test screening and he didn't know anything about the movie. He's watching it cold. And when the movie ended, I was asking him specifically about a problem at the ending. I didn't feel like the ending was working right for the audience. And a lot of people in the audience wanted to know what happened to Pete's character. Right. Is he okay? Does he have a job? Is, is he going to survive? And they had tons of questions. And uh, Paul, uh, talking about that scene, but also generally said to me, Judd, sometimes you move and edit just like eight frames and the whole scene changes. That's all he he said. He's like, sometimes you think it's a big adjustment, but it's a small adjustment, and and it solves your problem. Mm -hmm. So that was just rattling around in my head for a while, this piece of advice, because I take all of his insights very seriously. And I couldn't get the ending to work, and then I thought, maybe it's the wrong take. Maybe the shot of Pete at the end of the movie where he looks out on the city oh, is oh, the wrong shot. Oh, spoiler, but yes, I got it. <laughs> yeah, well, so. I'm assuming everyone here has seen the movie. I don't know. I, I'm giving it all away. So if, watch this after you've seen the movie.
1: Actually, actually by the way, <laughs> I'm glad you're talking about it because it's so different from, I think, any ending you've done. Well, you
2: know, the ending is him realizing that uh, maybe he can take a chance in life. Maybe he will feel strong enough. To, you know, escape his world. I mean, he hasn't spent any time in Manhattan in the movie, so just looking at Manhattan seems to be a metaphor for risk and maybe having the confidence to believe in himself and to be willing to try to have a relationship with this woman who he loves, who he always thought he wasn't good enough for. And so, the last shot used to be that he walk, he walks outside, he looks around, and in the shot, Pete did this because it was really bright. And he goes like, and I froze on that. So, you know, I cut out on that. And I thought it was interesting. It was like a physical like thing to it. But then right at the last second, I found a different take where he just looked. Yep. And, and he, he wasn't shielded. He didn't look scared. He just looked more confidently. And then we said, maybe we need to, you know, put up a, a tribute to Pete's father which felt appropriate and then i was talking to someone uh, and they and we were kicking around should we put up a picture of pete's dad and so i went through all the pictures and then i found a picture of pete's father in his firefighters blues his uniform and he's holding pete and pete's maybe i think maybe two maybe younger and and they both look so happy and What I liked about the photo is that they seem happy, but also that Pete's dad also looks fun. He looks like he was the guy that would be the best firefighter ever, but also the guy you wanted at the party, that he was hilarious, and you felt his personality in it. And after I added that to the end of the movie, the tribute to his father, uh, no one ever asked what happened to Pete again, because I think what it did was it said to the audience, well, you know what happened to this kid. He's Pete. He made this movie. That's what happened to him. And and that whole issue went away. Got
1: it. It you know, I want to talk about the writing part of that as well, because um you are you know an incredibly skilled writer. And as a director, when and how those things meet, and even looking at that shot, for example when you were writing, I realize it went through changes in the editing that you've just described. Um, do you actually now visualize? Because that is a, you know, that's a, now obviously that's a specific location downtown with, with all the federal buildings. So obviously there's, there, you know, being there may have made decisions about how you used the camera and how you shot that moment. But do you, and how do you visualize when you're writing?
2: Well, that's a unique situation because we had three different scenes we thought could end the movie. One was a breakfast scene with the entire family, where we see them as a family with Bill Burr and Maude there and Marissa. We did another scene where Pete, we see what Pete's doing for a living and he's become the assistant teacher in the classroom for Bill Burr's kids. Uh, And we shot that whole scene. And then we also shot this scene of dropping off Kelsey at her test to work for the city. And I wasn't sure which one would be right. I thought maybe I'll use all of them. Maybe I'll use one of them. I didn't know. Had you written Uh, all
1: three? had written all three?
2: I I wrote all three and I shot all three. But when I went to scout the location for uh, City Hall and dropping off Kelsey in Manhattan to take this test, I'm looking around outside, you know, trying to figure out wh- wh- where the shots are. And, okay, I guess that's the door. And where do I bring him in? And then I look and I look around and I and I see the Freedom Tower. And I realize, oh, my God, this is where the Twin Towers was.
1: Like, we're there. This is
2: that's we're where his like, dad
1: died. And that's where his dad died.
2: Yeah, like, like like, if he stood here, that's the sky where the Twin Towers were. And it felt like, oh, we're supposed to be here. This is the end of the movie, is is this. And I I also knew that about 80% of the audience would not know that. And I didn't care. I didn't want it to be very on the nose. The Freedom Tower is like sticking out behind another building. And and most people wouldn't notice, like, oh, that's the spot. But for me, there it felt like there was a certain uh you know logic that the universe had handed to us by being in the perfect spot uh, where not he's it. seeing his future and his past. And it's,
1: and it's all, it's all there. Now, and as, so. As a, as a writer, um, not, and I'm not talking about a sort of the dialogue scenes, but I'm talking about potentially structural scenes, transitions from one scene to another, or actually, you know, the visual moments. When do those things occur to you in that process before you're on the set or You know, do visuals come later? Where are you in that process as a writer-director?
2: You know, I, I have a general sense of them, but most of it happens on The Scout with my production designer, Kevin Thompson, and I'm with our cinematographer, Bob Ellsworth. And, you know, those things are growing and morphing as we're finding these locations. And then we discuss you know what what can we do here so for instance we know these kids hang out in basements right so, and that's something pete talked about like spending a lot of high school is in basements smoking pot and watching movies and playing video games and doing some low-level drug dealing okay so now we're looking for basements is this is this the right basement oh there, there's a basement that has a window where someone could walk up and buy drugs oh that feels right i mean pete went on the location scouts with us wow. this is why i like to work with young people you, you can't get you know, someone who's been around a long time to go on location scouts with you multiple times. But he came and he's one of the producers of the movie. And he said, no, this is the spot. Oh, no, you you got to get, get this here. And then as we do revisions, once we get a sense of it, we write into it. For instance, there's a scene where they're all playing basketball at an abandoned basketball court. Well, we didn't know it would be an abandoned basketball court. We just looked for ratty basketball courts. And then we found one that had been overgrown with weeds that was at the location of a shut down orphanage. And we were like, oh, this is perfect. This is where you would get high and dick around all day. And so then we wrote that into the scene. And then we said, oh, then someone should try to kick them out of here. And we hired our friend Keith Robinson, this hilarious actor and comedian to be the security guard who yells at them for hanging out at the Abandon orphanage, and then they get into a fight with a guy. And uh, and so that, that's how I work, which is I'm trying to like slowly let it come to life and do revisions and also do rehearsals and improvisations. So the whole thing is morphing through the entire prep, the shoot, and the edit. I don't, it, I don't know what it is. It's not like a play, and I'm trying to capture it. I'm actually letting it grow like an organism the entire time.
1: Got it. That's actually well, well spoken about what it is, which is, uh, you know, ev- evolutionary. Um, I just was wondering when the house was chosen for uh, funny people um, that Adam Sanders is living in, which is a significant yeah. sort of space. Um, how did you choose that one? How did that one emerge? And how do you visualize that while you were
2: writing? We definitely visualize that he's in a gigantic house alone and he, he just lives there with his housekeeper. And that it would be, you know, a metaphor for the, you know, the emptiness of his life. You know, the whole world loves him. He's basically decided that the most important thing in the world is to be famous and rich and put out these movies, but he hasn't put time into becoming a healthy person and developing normal, healthy relationships. So he's in this giant house where everything seems perfect, but it's really a nightmare. To him so we you know, scouted around Malibu and found this crazy house and then as we're looking at it we're like oh my god they have a pool and then they have another building with another pool inside so they have a pool outside and then a building with a pool inside and all the walls at this indoor pool are made of shells like someone glued shells <laughs> on this, this entire gigantic space and again we started writing for it like okay well then now we have to do a scene in this pool house and you know for me it's always about knowing that i'm going to adjust every step of the way as as i get those contributions from every department you know what you know what can we do here is there any is there anything in this house i should rewrite a scene for should i oh there's a long hallway let's let's show adam wandering down this long hallway with this woman that he's hitting on or you know that's you know that's part of the process using everything
1: got it as you're working um and and this is this morphing process i'm interested in you're talking about your relationship with your assistant directors um and upms but in particular because if things are changing and it's going to lead to another part of our conversation. But if things are changing, how do they schedule for you because things are changing?
2: I have to say that I've been around a lot. I'm old now. You know, I used to be young, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I know better. So I, I'm not the person that confuses them and changes things at the last minute. Most of this will happen in prep. And once, you know, once uh, we are shooting – I'm not the guy that ever goes, you know what? It should happen on the Empire State Building. (laughs) I I just don't do that. Because, you know, know, I've worked on some movies early in my career where uh, people were very willing to just throw everything out in a way that was so expensive and would cause so many problems with the studio. Like, why do we have to go to the studio and ask for millions more because we bailed on our idea and wanted to do it this way now? And and I thought, that brings me so much tension. I don't want to do it that way. I want to be the guy that if you give him a budget, he will hit it every single time. And if I encounter a problem, I will find a way financially to fix it and not bother you. So I've never gotten over budget on any movie I've ever directed because I'm obsessively rational and reasonable, mainly to save my mental state. And so I, I do, Overshoot. I improvise a lot. I'll shoot a whole like the ending. I'll shoot three endings, but it's all in the budget and it's all figured out beforehand. And I do have a sense of how long it takes me to shoot a certain scene, and I will know in prep. uh, You know what? There's a lot of improvisation in that scene. I know it's like a little three-page scene, but I may need the entire day. Like that's that's the scene we we have to give a lot of time to. These scenes I can do three of them in the morning. But that one, I need the whole day, and and because I have a sense of it now, my ads are not in hell.
1: In, in, um, thanks for sparing them. Um, <laughs> in in this, uh, and I know we're oftentimes forced to shoot out of sequence just because of the nature of of scheduling. Um, where are you when that happens, um, and how do you handle it if you are suddenly gonna have to do the first scene that you have to shoot is one of the last scenes of the movie? What do you do and how do you handle that in, in terms of, you know, your, your work and also your work with your, your assistant directors?
2: Uh, yeah, I try to be aware of the emotional life of my actors. So hmm. from the from the get-go, I'll think about, like, will this be a nightmare for them to do? So with Bill Burr, for instance, I thought I'd like to do the first scene with Marisa Tomei, uh, you know, to be the first scene in the movie where they see each other to be the first scene they do. So let's make sure we do that. And I'm aware that there's a big scene with Pete and his mom where he talks about missing his dad and it's very emotional. And I know I don't want to do that in the morning because probably Pete will be done for the day after that. Uh, and so I also don't want to do it early in the days we're shooting in the real house, not on a stage. We're in the real house. So maybe that should be the last scene we shoot in the real house. So it's still early in the schedule, but it's day 15 of our schedule, but it's the end of all the scenes in the house. So there does seem to be a progression. And I think about that. I mean, I'm very aware of what makes it hard and I will go, you know, go to extremes to not do it in the ridiculous way where you say, you know, to, to an actor and an actress. I know you have no scenes together, but we're going to start out with the love scene, you know. Uh, which I hear those stories all the time, and I think, why didn't somebody not do that? Uh, but it just takes being thoughtful, and I think a lot of times people aren't thoughtful about the actors and actresses. They don't go, what will this be like for them? What do they need to do a good job?
1: Got it. What's the first thing you do when you get on set? Where do you go?
2: In the morning, uh, I, I I try to um, remind myself why we're there. That's the first thing I do. I try to read the scene. I have my assistant create a little binder of the current scene, every version of the scene that I've had in rewrites so I could see the path of how I revise it and why. And then I usually have transcriptions of improvisations that we did off of a scene, which I will reread. And then usually I have had someone create a document which is what I think I might wanna shoot in addition to the scripted version, like highlights from all the drafts and all the improvs. Like here's 20 lines that might be worth having in editing or areas for discussion uh, in an improv. And I review that uh, in the morning while eating a large burrito.
1: Got it. Who are the first people you talk to after you've done this? That's, by the way, quite, um, thank you for sharing what that is. Uh, Who do you talk to first after you sort of reviewed the possibilities for this scene?
2: Uh, I usually talk to my producer, Barry Mendel, who's done a, you know a lot of movies with me and we, we we're just trying to remind ourselves uh what we're doing because it's not all in the script it's not like here it is it's all here it's like a thousand other ideas and you know we'll we'll also say like okay this is a funny scene but there's a chance in post we'll decide it shouldn't be that funny so let's not forget to let's shoot the scene but let's get a more serious version but also if we do want it funny, remember we have these three ideas that might make it hysterical. Let's try to grab those also, so we we try to figure out what our hopes are for what we can get for the editor because really that's all we're doing is getting stuff for the editor i you know in my head, I always think, hmm. while I'm shooting a scene, I imagine I'm in editing, and I try to imagine what I wish I did, and that's how I do it. I go okay. I'm in editing. It's six months from now. Why do I hate this? What will I think I screwed up? Oh, you made it sappy. Okay, let's do some non-sappy version. Oh, you didn't get enough joke alts. You had two jokes here, neither of them worked. Okay, let's get some extra jokes. And that's you know, I work from a very Jewish fear of failure, <laughs> and and I'm just trying to I'm trying to load up for winter for Don't,
1: editing. That seems like a lot of work before you're even able to go to, for your first setup, and a lot of time. Yes. Is, is yeah. it? And then what do you do once you've made those decisions?
2: You know, I, then then I'll talk to my co-writers and uh, anyone who is involved in keeping an eye on the script, uh, and in, and in a way, I have to edit it in my mind. So as I do each piece of coverage, I have to go. Okay, I'm going to do the scene, and then. Uh, more serious version, get some extra jokes, and maybe do some improvs, and I have to do that in every piece of coverage. And I have to also be aware in in which moments I'm using two cameras and I'm trying to capture something on both actors simultaneously, so if something happens that's magical, do I have all of it or do I have to clean it up and make them try to recreate something? Because a lot of times we're trying to do things multi-camera so that if they get playful and they try something new that they can surprise each other and I'll have both reactions on film
1: if you're when you're shooting uh let's say single camera not multi camera um do you still, where do you position yourself uh, where are you uh, where's your body are you you know behind monitor next to the camera both where are you
2: i you know, sometimes i'm you know close by at a, at, at a monitor You know, there are times you know we we will put a little microphone uh, with me and a little speaker near the set. So if I want to talk them through something, I don't have to scream from another room, and I can speak quietly and they can hear me. Um, You know, at times I'll have a stand-up monitor a little closer if I feel it's necessary. But for the most part, I I usually don't want them to see me in their space. Uh, just because it feels uh, you know, a little weird. And then sometimes near the end, I might go near camera if I'm, so, you know, sometimes I'll have like 10 other lines I wish I had for editing and I'll go, okay, let's run these lines. You know, just say, why are you here? Say, why the f are you here? Say, what the f- is going on? Say, <laughs> and like, I'll just grab a whole bunch of shit
1: before we move on. You know, for those of you uh, out there who enjoy uh, sort of the extras and DVDs, there are there, these linoramas in many of these yeah, the yeah, DVDs yeah. that have all those collections. Yes. Uh, they're <laughs> particularly hysterical, at least uh, from, uh, I guess, it's Senna, who's in Trainwreck. Uh, maybe you'll talk about that in a minute. But let, in fact, let's talk about the issue of improvisation um, and what it means. Uh, I know you've said sometimes that it's kind of rewriting in the moment. but some people are really good at it some people are not there's some principles behind it talk about improvisation for you and you know what it means and how you use it
2: i just try to use people that i think have have something that they can add you know with the writing part of their mind so i try to cast really early i try to get into rehearsals very early so we can we can improvise and see what else we could do here so for instance Maude uh, is playing Pete's sister. So in a rehearsal, I know that I want them to fight. I know I want this fight to clarify what it's like to live in that house. And I want to see it through Maud's perspective so she can call him out on the fact that he takes up all the air in the house and he is so difficult that the, the mom takes most of her time to focus on him. And that she's also scared for him. She's leaving, but she's scared he won't be okay. She's also scared that she's leaving and her mom won't be okay. And so it's this moment where she's trying to give him a present, but really her intention is to say, can you please be normal? Can you please not drive mom crazy? Can I leave without guilt? She wants to leave without guilt. She wants to have her own life. Now there's a thousand ways to do a scene like that and so the improvisations might be very loose you know the improvisation could start with a simple question are you going to be okay and they might improvise all of that what do you mean what do you think i mean what are you going to do what are you going to do are you gonna get a job are you going to just sit here are you gonna drive mom crazy can you not drive mom crazy and that's that's the improv you know oh you think i'm driving mom crazy you're leaving you're bailing and then We might have done that in rehearsal three to four times before shoot day. And each time I take notes, each time I do a revision to the script, but I'm also saving stuff I liked that I didn't put in the script. And on the day, I say, let's shoot this scene. And then slowly I start feeding in some of the other ideas. And every once in a while, someone will just think of something in the moment and they know I'll never be mad if they bail on the script. And I think that's the key to it is they always have permission to leap. So if in the moment, you know, Pete thinks of something amazing, he's going to do it. And I also feel like when when the actors and actresses know that there's going to be improvisation, they listen differently. They're not waiting for their cue. They know it, it may not come. They have to live it. And sometimes the cue comes and they're so nervous that it won't come that they just seem more into it and they pay attention differently. And I want them to, you know, Live the moment. And when you have people that are really smart and funny, they might come up with the best joke in the movie. I mean, I would just assume, you know, six out of 10 of the lines that people love in The King of Staten Island were made up in that process by the actor or actress.
1: Now, are these, uh, are, this seems like there are two different times that this is happening. One is in your rehearsal period. Once you've made a decision after having listened to a number of versions and intentions that you give in and then rewritten when you're on the shoot is it more there knowing that yes you have to be alive cuz something I'm giving you permission to go with it but here is the things that need to be done or said where are where does that land
2: we're always aware that there there's a number of things that have to happen or have to be said and so we're we're making sure that gets done. For instance, when Bill Burr comes to the door to yell at Marissa Tomei because Pete tattooed his son, I know at some point it's a discussion about, is she going to pay for it? And he's going to be really hard on her. Like, yeah, you're paying for this. I got to get to that. But before I get to that, he could just rave on about how terrible her son is. But at the same time, in the scene... I know that the point of the scene is that while screaming at Marissa Tomei, based on her reaction to being yelled at, he is falling in love with her. So that was what we we said. As you curse her out, you fall in love with her. And by the end of it, you turn to jelly and you can't even hold your anger anymore because you're flummoxed by her response. That's why at the end of the scene, uh, he says, well, uh, I'm sure if your husband was live, he still he still would think that you, you should pay for it. Like he lost his rage; she disarmed him. But there's a bunch of ways to do that. But that's that's the ABC of of how we're trying to move through this moment. He comes in in a rage. You know, he, he's confronting her, and then she just she doesn't respond. Probably how his wife responds to him, just to tell him off in an equal manner. You know, he senses her compassion. And and what a great person she is, even while, uh, you know, raging at her.
1: Now, all of what you've just described, which is the it's sort of like the nature of that scene from where it starts to where it ends, does Bill Barton know? And have you used the similar language that you're using right now, in terms of the two of you discussing what this scene is? Um, yes. So, and then the question here is. Um, the issue of anticipation because you don't want him in the beginning of this i assume in the beginning of the scene to quote fall in love with her it's got to happen over the time of their exchange with each other so yeah if you've described a whole scene to whatever actors you're working with how do you keep it so that they don't get ahead of themselves
2: i'm just watching and and seeing if it feels right you know i'm trusting them to, to feel it out and then at some point if I have to I might go I think it happens later it seems like it's happening a little too early and you know, the first time I ever directed I was asked to direct an episode of the Larry Sanders show which was terrifying because I had to direct Rip Torn and Jeffrey Tambor and Gary Chandling uh, and Penny Johnson all these people they were just masters and I didn't know what I was doing at all so I went home and I read uh, a David Mamet book. I think it's called On Directing. And there was a line in it about how you don't want to micromanage the actors. You will, if you give them a very tiny adjustment, it will change the entire performance in the scene. If you just say, I think you're a little bit madder than this, every read will be different in the scene. And that's how I dealt with Rip Torn and people like that. Was to give them the tiniest direction uh, and then get out of the way. I, I never give like four or five things. It might just be, a, you know, at the end, I think I really let her have it. And I get out of the way. Uh, and then if I don't feel like we've gotten certain things by the end of it, I might get more anal with it. Uh, but that's how I try to to do it. I try to talk deeply about the scene so we all understand it. I really want it to feel organic to them and truthful. And I want my adjustments to be a little more universal. And if I don't get it, I'm not afraid to give somebody a line reading or clean it up at the end, but I'm really hoping that their rhythm uh, finds itself and 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 something special will happen that I never even imagined would happen.
1: In, in thinking about never imagining would happen. Um, I, I want to look at some specific moments, like uh, Jen Lynch singing that uh, <laughs> the song in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how did that happen? <laughs> I, mean, uh, I think
2: that happened in, in the audition. I, think she, I, I believe that she did that in the audition. And we just thought it was so funny. And obviously, we gave her a lot of uh, room to play because she's just as funny as anybody ever. And we liked the idea that everything about uh, Steve Crow working in the stereo store was very uncomfortable for him. We wanted it to be that everyone was very sexual in a way he did not know how to handle. That everyone's hitting on the customers and his boss is hitting on him and he's melting down. That's why he's hiding in the stock room. It's it's not something that he's able to deal with.
1: In the, in the movie, there's a moment when uh, Paul Rudd's girlfriend, uh, he's talking about her, he freaks out in the store uh, about her. And i uh, that's another moment where I, I'm thinking, this is so sort of magical and unexpected. And is it happening in the moment? Is he improvising this thing? Had you guys talked about it? And where and how did you create that moment?
2: You know, with the 40-year-old virgin, a funny thing happened, which is we did a table read of it. And I think we were very confident that all of the friends would be funny and all the bad advice he got would be funny. And we were less confident in the relationship between Steve and Catherine Keener. And what happened at the first table read was the scenes between Steve and Catherine Keener were all incredible. And all the scenes with the friends were terrible. And so our you know last minute, oh man, we better fix the script, was all about the fact that we hadn't made the friends three-dimensional enough and figured out what each one's point of view was and then we went into rehearsals and tried to come up with you know clean angles for each person and for Paul it was about you know this heartbreak he couldn't get over and you know Paul's so funny that you know I, I, I assume that most of that w- was a slightly controlled improvisation.
1: Got it. Um, uh, there, there's a moment when early on, when Steve Carell is screaming, and you have a number of shots with him, and I I I want to get how that that evolved. Um, it's it's early I, on in the movie.
2: I think that what we tried to do with that character was have him not be what you would expect. That he he wasn't just this nervous guy. He also had rage, and that's what was making us laugh is that he would pop every once in a while. He was pent up there was uh, this person at the improv when I was a young comedian and I was watching a show. I don't remember if it was like Maury Povich or something. And I was like, why is this guy who's always at the improv on this show? And then a Chiron came up and it said that he, he was 35 you know, year old virgin or something like that. And I always remember that that guy was kind of hostile. He was kind of a dick, you know? And I thought, Oh, so that should be a part of this character. He's not a, just a wallflower. He also rages occasionally and that was an angle that really helped steve have way more colors in in that character
1: got it um the the, the waxing scene um which is a classic piece of uh, american cinema um Which of course, you know, the if you you see for the first time and you're a movie maker, you're thinking, "Oh, he must have covered himself with fake, and it's a rip, and it's all done." And then, of course, it (laughs) turns out that it's all very real. (laughs) When did you guys decide, let's do that?
2: I think that what happened was that we wanted to do some sort of uh, sequence that you would have in any movie like this, where you dress him up and you make him look better and you give him a haircut, and all the friends try to get him ready to. Meet a woman, and uh, it's the makeover sequence. And we were writing a lot of ideas for it, and we knew it was generic. And we were a little bummed, like, "Well, how do you, how do you do this in a new way?" And Steve was the one who said, "You know, you could just wax me." And I, I, I didn't even know what he meant. And and he was like, "Yeah, you could just like wax me, like wax my chest, and it'll really hurt. Like, do it for real. It'll really hurt." It was all his idea. And it's funny, because at the time, I thought he just made it up. And I, I never thought he had been waxed before. But afterwards, I'm like, he's been waxed before. He knew what this experience was like, but he never copped to it. Uh, and so we hired a an actress who said she also was a professional waxer. But on the day, we slowly realized that she wasn't a professional waxer and just said that to get the job. And oh, at, one point she, at one point, she put wax like over his nipple and was about to pull. And we were like, you're going to tear his nipple off. And if you notice, his little blood spot yeah. you know, at the end, little droplets came up. And we had to CGI out some of it. it was, there was way more blood. Uh, but that's a fun uh, DVD extra, is a mini documentary of how we shot it because it was almost all improvised. When I was a kid, I used to go to this place, Action Park, where you would ride these little carts down these cement paths, and everyone would always fall, scratch their arms up, go to the nurse, and she would put some sort of antiseptic spray on it, and then it always hurt the person, and then they would curse out the nurse. And so, I, you, as you were waiting to get it sprayed on you, you'd watch like the nicest person in the world be like, "You foul!" Oh! Like everyone cursed her out. They couldn't help it because it hurt so much, and so his reaction was based on that—that that he he couldn't help himself but scream at her.
1: Now that was a definitely a multi-camera shoot. If I if yes. I recall, four cameras. Yeah. Now I'm interested. In, I want to talk about camera for a lot, but but for specifically um, the your interest in using film versus uh, digital. Where are you on all of that? I you know, I feel bad that more people don't shoot
2: on film. I haven't found it to be much cheaper to shoot digitally. There are certainly certain types of movies that you might need it for for special effects or, or if you're shooting in low light a lot. But I, I just think it looks better. People are like, it, it's, it doesn't look any any worse on digital. And I've, I've done the test where you have both cameras and it does not look as good. That's just, you know, my... Opinion. We did it on train rack with Jody Lily Lipes, our our DP, and we we shot all our tests with digital and film, and film looked a thousand times better. That being said, I shot digitally on uh, this is forty with Fade and Papa Michael, our DP, and it, it looks gorgeous. And I I liked it for that movie because I wanted it to feel very real and immediate and like the audience's life. I, it, so I didn't want that separation that film might give you for that particular movie. Um, but for the most part, I like how film looks, and I haven't found that it slows me down or costs me that much more. In fact, we shot the, the TV show *Crashing* with Pete Holmes on film, and we always loved uh, how how it looks.
1: Is the studio, are you getting any opposition now from uh, from studios and networks saying, uh, you know, well, you know, you're gonna. It's going to cost us more because you shoot a lot in the sense of, uh, you know, you may be doing a scene three or four different ways, and it would be obviously. In their minds, cheaper on video. So, what do? You, how do you? A digital? What do you? What's your response to them? actually, you've given it, but I want to hear it. If I were an executive, saying, "No, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's gonna you." I like the way you make your movies with all those changes and stuff, but uh, uh, it's yeah. gonna be much more expensive. But you're processing film. What, what's your response when they say that? If, I mean, it's, a, it, it's a little more expensive,
2: but actually, not that much. I, 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 unless you have a very tight budget, which most people do. There's a real argument that aesthetically it, it, it looks so much better that it's worth doing. I feel like television has suffered from the fact that all these shows look exactly the same. And there's definitely some DPs that are so good in post with the manipulating the digital image that they they can do um, amazing things to to make it more unique. But you know, if you if you, you bang around Netflix and just watch a whole bunch of shows. Uh, they all look like they, they were shot by the same person. And uh, I do think that that, you know, is a shame. Uh, I'm sure Roger Deakins knows what he's doing. And, and, you know, there are those people who are like, Judd, you're wrong. It's it, it, You could not tell the difference. You
1: know, And did-
2: maybe there are certain DBs who, who are that good at it. But I, I, I find that, you know, when I make a movie like The King of Staten Island, instantly everyone's like, oh my God, it looks so much better. And I do think, it does but that's also bob Ellsworth is a genius rdp and
1: so now, it looks incredible you've worked with Janusz uh, uh, Kaminski and, uh, and 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 bob Ellsworth, um some some uh, uh, papa michael as well you've worked with some amazingly talented uh, cinematographers and i'm i remember early on you were sort of claiming i don't know anything about camera um and i'm interested in having work with some of these you know some of the best cinematographers out there what you've been learning about camera, what has been changing for you, if anything?
2: It, it's hard for me to explain any of that because I, I don't have a great language for technology or my visual style. I am generally trying to make movies where you forget there is a director. I'm attracted to a documentary style, for the most part, for most of the movies that I've, I've written and directed. So. That's what I'm trying to get to. And that's what I thought Bob Ells had really captured. We definitely were trying to do uh it, like a Hal Ashby, Sidney Lamette, aesthetic, you know, with this movie, it's all handheld, the entire film. And it, we wanted it to be gritty like Staten Island. And I, I'm the last person to explain how that was accomplished. It, you know, one thing that I did with this film was I didn't lock down the camera the way I usually do. A lot of times with a comedy, you just shoot the single, then you shoot the other single and you shoot the wide and the camera doesn't move much because if people are doing funny things, you don't want to miss it. And with this movie, I trusted Bob Ellsworth who is also the A camera operator to just go where he wanted to go. It was a much looser shooting style. And my concern would be that what if he's on the wrong person when someone does something I needed to see, and when I got into editing, he was never on the wrong person, ever. Uh, and I didn't lose any moment that was special to me. Uh, but as a result, there's an energy and an aliveness to how it shot that I haven't had in my other movies due to my own rules with the cinematographer about uh, my lack of uh, a willingness to let them follow their own instincts in terms of the camera movement.
1: It's interesting, because in Funny People, uh, you can see the difference in terms of some of the scenes uh, where there is camera movement um, and uh, as a distinguishment from the the, the the films before it. And I, I obviously there was a dialogue that you're having with uh, Janusz, which must have said, you know, here's what I want this scene to be about and do they, particularly, I see what, what you're talking about in, in with the experience with Bob, it, do they? Do you go and when you're on the set, what is your process of saying, okay, this is how I understand before what you just said, which is we're going to get these singles because I want to make sure I get everything that's, that's happening. What's the process in this film where um, your dialogue with him when you're setting up the scene, do you block it and say, I need the camera to be here, or do you block it and step back and have a discussion? What do you do?
2: Well, usually we've talked about the basic way to do it on the location scouts. We we, 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 I'll usually say, well, then he'd come in here and he'd land here and then he'd move up around here, and then usually that's when Bob will go, well, if he came in here, he could land there, and then it would look better from here. But that's usually why things look good. Is that adjustment from the cinematographer? And it's you know it's very subtle. It is just someone's taste. It's their eye, and it, it, you almost don't know what's happening. And then you get the film back, and you go, "Oh my God, look at you know he 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 made ten adjustments, and suddenly this looks gorgeous. Oh, now we see that in the background. Oh, now we have this tableau. And I try to hire people much more talented than me to make sure I don't screw all of that up. And I, I, you know, I have a decent eye. Like, I know if the, the, the shots are right for the scene to work. And I, I'm not an idiot in terms of, like, knowing, uh, you know, how to shoot things. But I do much better with the true artist by my side uh, giving me very strong advice about the better way to do it. But my main aesthetic is I want you to forget you're watching a movie. I don't want you to go, what an incredible shot or, oh, look at that. Like, I want you to feel like these people exist. That's all I care about is that you lose yourself in this in this world and you never think that's an actor doing a thing or that's a set or wow, it must have taken a while to set up that shot. I just don't want that to ever happen.
1: Gotcha. Uh, casting, um, what's your process? Um, both in terms of, obviously the people that you know and people you like to hang out with um but also people you don't know and parts that you know you're going to have to audition in some way what's your process Uh,
2: well for certain movies the world is based on the world of the star who also might be the writer so i will try to understand what that person was so when it's someone like pete davidson and we're Casting for his friends, I'll say, you know, is there anyone you have in mind for this? And he'll say, you know, my best friend Ricky Velez is a comedian, and he's a killer. He, he's he's perfect to play Oscar. And I'll put that man through his paces and audition him and make sure it's correct. But okay. I'm very Listen, aware stop, that stop,
1: stop there, I I got where you're going. That's I want right. to know what those paces are. You know, if if he came in or. As I sometimes say, if I were coming in to interview an interviewer, what would the paces be? What were the paces that you put in? Well,
2: well, for him, you know, he's going to come in and read with Pete, and then he has to improvise with Pete, and I have to get a sense that he can handle this process. So, you know, he came in, and instantly I realized, oh, this is exactly right. I wanted his friend to be tough and charismatic and to be someone that could pull him into trouble but i also need this guy to be be funny you know he he's also has his own sense of humor and i need to know that that ricky can improvise that he could roll with it and he was all those things and because he was all of those things i'm more inclined to hire him because i know that they have a shorthand i know that they love each other and they have a history and that that will be apparent on the screen for instance there's a moment early in the movie where they're talking about how Pete's character doesn't mind them making jokes about his dad dying. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then Ricky says, you know, knock, knock, who's there? Not your dad. Now that was an improvisation, but an actor who wasn't friends with Pete would never have said that. They wouldn't have dared go that far or that dark, but Ricky knew how Pete would react. You know, they have their, uh, their unspoken language together pete reacted perfectly it's all the same improv the whole reaction to that joke is from one moment in the, the improvisation in the,
1: in the casting when you were with him or any actor that's come in or non-actor that's coming in and you want to find out whether they're good at the, an improv now obviously pete was there um let's say pete isn't there or, or in fact i'd say who is in who is in your casting session so and what might be the sort of the impetus uh, to to the improv. What would you, what might you say to get that improv going?
2: I, I think that uh, I'm lucky that, you know, Pete sat in on most all of the auditions. Again, a young person getting their big break telling a personal story will go to all the auditions. You're not going to get, you know, a legendary actor to go to auditions every day for a month and read with a hundred people or more. Oh. When we did Knocked Up, Seth read with a hundred women to, to find Katherine Heigel. and Amy, that's, that's did helpful.
1: He, did Amy Schumer do, uh, also do the same similar thing with you?
2: Absolutely. And I think that that helps us figure out, who, you know, who's right. It, it can be done another way, but, that's that makes it possible for you to figure out who she's going to have unique chemistry with. So uh, for instance, on Trainwreck, train wreck, she said, these are my friends who are funny. And one of them was Pete Davidson. And that's how I met Pete Davidson. She's like, there's this kid, he's 19 years old. He's so funny. It makes no sense how hysterical he is at 19. And I watched him on a YouTube video and we hired him to do a little cameo and afterwards Bill Hader was like that kid's funny I'm gonna tell Lorne Michaels about him and then he got cast on Saturday Night Live like six weeks later uh and that's you know what I'm looking to do Amy said I think uh, Colin Quinn should play my dad and I've known Colin Quinn a long time and I thought about it and I wasn't sure does that make sense is he old enough does that line up right and we brought him in and you know we read him and then because she loves him so much and they're so close that you get something that you wouldn't get without that connection. So it's not true for every part in these movies but for a few of them like Derek Gaines plays the guy who is the other busboy who who beats up Pete in the fight club. They yeah. used to be roommates and, and Pete would tell me, oh he used to be a, a hip hop dancer and so at a rehearsal someone said Maybe after you punch Pete in the face, you just start popping and locking. And he did it, and we laughed so hard. But we wouldn't have known that if it wasn't someone from his inner circle. Belle Powley, who plays Kelsey, uh, the love interest, they were good friends. And so she came in and read. A lot of people read for that part. But they just have a connection and a warmth that, that translated instantly.
1: I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, uh, Seth and and, and Catherine Hagel when you finally cast her, because you said you saw, and he, together, both of you read lots of people. Do you remember what it was in her audition that did it? And obviously, again, I'm wondering what you improvised with her and Seth and in that audition, if you remember. And again, I'm looking for how that improvisation gets set up in an audition. That's what I'm really curious about.
2: I think one of the main audition scenes uh, in that movie uh, was the one where she knows she's pregnant. She takes him out to dinner to find out more about him before then telling him that she is pregnant with his baby. And so the joke is... And she's like, so what do you do for money? And that it would all just be the worst thing. You know, like, I, you know, I, I, uh, a male man ran over my foot and I got 12 grand. So, you know, I'm living on that, which is pretty good. You know. And, and just her horror at realizing that it's the worst guy to ever get you pregnant. And then she has to tell him that she's pregnant and have a fight with him when he doesn't handle it well. All right. So we did that scene and we realized that it was only funny when someone was very strong with Seth, that if someone played it meekly, Seth just seemed mean. It needed to see, to be someone as strong as his character or stronger, and then it got funny. Then how weird and awful uh, Ben Stone is, uh, becomes funny because she can handle him. and And they just had a really unique, hilarious chemistry but we did read everybody in town for it. And there were people who were, who were geniuses, but for some reason with Seth, it didn't play the way it, it played with them.
1: Uh, and if you set the uh, I an mean, improvisation on that particular uh, 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 casting process, again, what might you have said to whoever the is, were they were coming in? What would the improv, they've read the scene first, which is, if I understand it, that's your process, that they read the scene, and hopefully with the actor that you'd like to have. If the actor's not there, who do they read with? By the way, if you didn't have Seth, or you don't have well, usually them, me, usually me. So you'll you'll read with them. And who else? Who else is in your casting session besides yourself? Uh, usually,
2: you know, one of the producers and and the casting director. Um, you know, we've worked with uh, Allison Jones on a lot of projects. And so this this project, David Rubin and Gail Keller were the Casting
1: directors. And when you've had them read and you've seen what you've seen, now you want to do an improv with them to see what they can do, whether it's with you or if it's with you know the actors. What will, you, what will the improv be? What will you, how will you set it up as an example? What will you say to them? Uh,
2: I, I think I would say I'm going to let Seth drift. He's going to go on about his life. And it's gonna be really bad, and just ask him questions. And you're trying to appear polite, but really you're in a panic. And so just you're 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 being a spy right now before you tell him. And then I just let it go. Now, Seth is so funny that those auditions were as funny as anything you've ever seen. Seth could riff on I'm the nightmare guy who doesn't know he's a nightmare for days, and it was so funny to watch, you know, and he would just go like, you know, I like smoking marijuana. I mean, some people think it's bad, but I think it's good for me. I think, you know, I think better. I get ideas. And, and just seeing how, how the, all the actresses would respond to that. And he'd be like, you smoke pot? And like, uh, no, I don't smoke pot. You should. You should try it. You want some? You know, and, and then you would see if they have a comedy team
1: dynamic or not. Got it. Do you, do you, do you video these, uh, these auditions? Yes,
2: absolutely. Yes, we videotape them for sure.
1: And, and, and it's also
2: part of the, the 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 development of the movie because I get I, it allows Seth in that moment to figure out his character. So by the time he's read with eighty people, he knows his moves inside and out, and he's gotten to know his character. But he's not just reading with the with the, the people playing that part. He's he's reading with a lot of different parts, and so. We are, you know, we're getting to see the scenes, and we're we're looking at this as a, a way for us to understand if our script works.
1: It did. Adam Sandler, who I know was your roommate one time, did you also do a similar thing in the casting of Funny People?
2: I think the other people that Seth had, to, uh, I'm sorry, that Adam had to read with, um, you know, for the most part, uh, all his scenes were with Seth or Leslie or Eric Van. So we weren't searching for those lead parts. So it was a different situation. But you know, Adam and I are very old friends, and so he was deeply involved from the earliest stages of the writing. I wrote the movie for Adam. So we were able to do table reads and rehearsals and and get a lot of time out of him uh, in order to develop it. And that's why I, I feel like it feels so lived in, you know, because we did do the same process. With Adam.
1: When you're not having uh, actors um, who are, I'm still interested in the, well, you did set up, if you're, who, who are people that, let's say, other people in the movie know, so you're, you're now auditioning somebody who nobody knows, except you may have looked at tapes or something like that. Uh, what's that audition like? I, I'm, and I'm wondering, because I think he's amazing in the King of Staten Island, uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, Moises Arias, who plays Igor, who is, mm-hmm. I think, hysterical. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you remember the casting. Now, he may have been a friend, too, so uh, I don't know. But when...
2: The- yeah. I hadn't met him before, but he was on Hannah Montana, and he played a character named Rico. So when he was a like, little kid, he was on this television show. I- and my kids used to watch that show all the time. And I always said, who's this Rico kid? This is the funniest kid ever, this Rico kid. Uh, and... When he came in, it was like Harrison Ford came in. I was just so excited that Rico was here, but now he's an adult and uh, has done a lot of acting. Uh, and he read with Pete. It, it, you know, he came in straight to Pete. And you know, we didn't do a series of auditions for the movie without Pete. We did a little bit in New York for some of those parts. And then everyone we liked, Pete came in and, and read with on the second round.
1: Got it. Um, there, in 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 Trainwreck, you have <laughs> some amazing performances by people that I wouldn't have known are going to give you amazing performances. I mean, LeBron James is astounding in the movie. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, what did you? What was the casting process with LeBron? How did you know you were going to get somebody who could really create a character?
2: In, in a lot of these movies, we're trying to figure out a world, so you know, Amy Schumer is a comedian, we don't want her to play a comedian, so we want to do something that can capture her sense of humor and her attitude. So quickly we thought, okay, so she works for a magazine, she works for like a snarky, gossipy type of magazine, and that'll get her around interesting things. It's a comedy, we want it to take us to fun places. And then we thought, well, what's the guy do? She falls in love with a guy. It's supposed to be the right guy. And and the movie is about what does a person like Amy do when she meets the right guy? How does she screw it up? Is she too, you know, uh, unstable to make it work? And at some point we thought, what about a doctor who deals with athletes? Because then we could have the world of sports in the movie. And that's another fun place. For this story to live. And very quickly, we realized, well, that would mean that the Bruno Kirby from When Harry Met Sally could be an athlete. And we we, we thought, well, that could be any sport. Who, who would it be? And at the moment, uh, the first person we thought of was LeBron James. How funny would it be if every time he talks about his relationship problems he's always talking to LeBron James who's just the best friend and the joke is he's so into it he's a great friend and that's the joke that he's an amazing uh, loving friend he had just hosted Saturday Night Live so we went and had lunch with him one day after uh, he had a game the night before and I guess he just loves Bill is the truth he must have had a fun time getting to know Bill you know, he clearly wanted to get into film and television. Now he has an enormous production company. He's incredibly successful. And I think he liked the idea of being in a film. And he got the joke. We told him the joke. And, and he wasn't weird about it all. We were like, and the joke is, he's friends with you. And that's what's funny, because why wouldn't you be friends with him? And he laughed so hard. And we said, and you're cheap. For no reason, you just happen to be cheap. We'll just make that part of your personality. He's not cheap, but it made us laugh that that he would be cheap. And he showed up and he was riotous, first take, first day. I don't know how he prepared. He just got the joke. I I think he did do some work with somebody, I guess. And he was so fun to, to do all those moments with. It wasn't hard at all. He was just
1: hysterical. And did you do improvs with him? Because-
2: yeah, it's all all improv. I mean, we had scenes and we had, you know, we, we tried to write it so that if he couldn't act, we could spoon feed it to him. And then he showed up and he could act and was really funny. So then we were able to goof around more and let him play. We we, we fed him a lot of funny lines, but he could do it just as well himself.
1: When you say fed him a lines, um, and I, you described uh, you know having that mic and that that that's, that speaker, um, how what's that process? Are you feeding lines in a rehearsal period and then letting it go? Are you feeding lines while you're shooting? Both, or how do you do? How are you feeding these lines?
2: I I'm doing it, you know, in the middle of the of the take. I'm just you know I'm slowing them down and just getting alternate lines for different moments. A lot of times I'm just saying, like, let's just do that last section again. You know, like, the check comes, and they fight about the check that LeBron didn't bring money to the restaurant, and and clearly that happens all the time. LeBron's the guy that doesn't bring money and never pays. And Bill's mad at him. And then in the moment, Bill was really funny. He just went hard at him, like, he's, like, really played pissed. And LeBron naturally went to this, like, I'm, I meant to. I'm sorry. I mean, he did this, you know, kind of fun, soft response to it, and it it really just made us laugh. And so, you know, we you know we took a, a few runs at, at at it, but their rhythm together kind of landed pretty quick. They were funny with each other, and they could read each other what they were doing, and that's that really was making us All right. laugh. So- but it wasn't hard. That's what's strange. It wasn't hard
1: I'll, yeah. I'll talk about working uh, with uh, John Senna um, uh, both having him that you know, the sex scene and but particularly the scene in the theater where he is responding and by the way, again, I recommend everybody if you're into it yes. get the DVD look at the linorama it is uh, there it's hysterical and i I'm saying did he make these lines up? I mean and he they, actually they did something them? that
2: most people don't do. He did something that usually doesn't happen, which I didn't realize till later, which is he knew improv was coming and he wrote a bunch of lines for himself. Like in the middle of sex, he just starts speaking Chinese. (laughs) There's a bunch of things like that. And he came in loaded. Uh, And you, you do want people to do that. You want people to think about it and prepare. A lot of times they do. Sometimes they don't. But he came in fully loaded. He might have felt like, I don't know how fast I'll be once the camera started rolling. So I'm going to write some some joke alts here, and they were fantastic. So you know, John really came ready to play.
1: And and let's talk about shooting a nude scenes of which you've done a number, or love scenes certainly. what's your process and that, and particularly in that one, here this guy's, you know, full mood. I mean, I guess not frontal, at least in terms of what we see, Mm -hmm. but we certainly see everything else. And he's of course doing these hysterical lines at the same time. What's the process of working that kind of scene? What do you do?
2: I tried to go over it in the rehearsal. You know, I have these really funny pictures from that rehearsal where, you know, we literally have a bed in the middle of an empty stage and, we, you know, we have a little camera, and I just say, let's let's just see what the positions are. And I just had them do different sex positions to see what was funny, but also to see what made them comfortable, what made Amy comfortable. You don't want to make anyone do anything that they're not uh, feeling really good about. So this is something that we learned on Girls. You know, Jenny Connor and Lena Dunham would take pictures of what they thought the shots were for anything sexual and bring them to the actresses, you know, way ahead of time, uh, never on the day to go, this is what we're thinking. Are you comfortable with this? I mean, now they have intimacy coordinators on a lot of these shows to make sure people are not asked to do things at the last minute, which is really important. You want to ask people, uh, you know, days before, weeks before, uh, you know, this is a shot. This is how long it'll take. This is what I need you to do. Are you comfortable? You don't want to, in the middle of a shoot, go, I had an idea. What if you <laughs> held each other like this? Because people feel pressure to say yes because right. there's 100 people working. Uh, and that's how we did it with with Amy and John. We found funny angles and
1: and and then, you know, did revisions based on those angles. Did John know also right away that, you know, he was going to be totally exposed? I mean, was that part of even the script or was that part of that discussion with the, the two of you? Because it, it is also part of it. I mean, this guy's got a body that, you know, uh, Atlas and uh, yeah. would be jealous of. So, I mean...
2: Uh, Bill used to make fun of me because I would say, I feel bad making John B. naked like this. And Bill Hader would always say, like, he spends his entire life exercising and working out and lifting weights to show off his body. He does not feel bad. He <laughs> wants you to see it. He doesn't work out that much to keep it covered. Uh, so I definitely tried to be sensitive to him. But you know, unlike me, I would never want to be, uh, you know, n- not clothed because it doesn't look good. But it, but he, he he was very comfortable
1: with uh, your wife and uh, and and all. So let's go to Catherine Keener first, though, um, in the last scene in the forty-year-old uh, version. Uh, where you in fact is it 's a sex scene and it 's pretty hysterical as well as it feels really intimate uh and i 'm interested in the evolution of that scene and particularly the evolution of the end scene where of, at least of that where um we suddenly go into hair and we start seeing yes, yeah do, first of all, how do you set up that 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 sex scene? what have you said you know how are you making them comfortable as you did obviously with the with the, uh, you know, and Amy
2: well we were trying to do something there which I was nervous about the whole time I yeah you know, I had Gary Shandling at the table read and he would read drafts and he kept saying to me Judd you have to show the sex at the end you need to show the sex because you have to see that their sex is better than all their friends sex because they're in love and that's the point of your movie it's about finally having sex and that the sex is good because it's real, and it's a real loving relationship. And I kept saying to Gary, I can't show the sex, Gary. I don't, how do you do that? And I would, I'd be frustrated with him. And he would leave me messages on my answering machine. Have you figured it out yet? You got to show sex. got to show it. You have to show it. And I didn't know what to do. And I, I said to Steve one day, and I wasn't happy. I'm like, what do we do? Gary keeps leaving messages for me. And he said, what if I just break out into songs? And I said, oh, like, uh, let the sun shine in from hair, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah," something like that. And then we got, you know, a choreographer, Ann Fletcher, the great director, but she's also a choreographer. She choreographed it. And, you know, it's a bit like a Bollywood sequence. At the time, I had never seen a Bollywood movie. I'm sure Ann did. Uh, And so that solved that problem. And then for the moment beforehand, it's just because Catherine Keener is a genius. You know, she made it appear like they just had sex and it's a it's two beats one is yeah they have sex and then we say like you know 10 yeah. seconds later right. and then he looks really nervous because this is his nightmare that this sex will be bad and he thinks that he'll be revealed as a freak and not worthy of her and then she looks at him and she goes let's just do it again and then it says like two hours later right and then you Cut to the song, but the reason why it oh, looks no, right it was only
1: three, before you cut to the song, you there's a sh- top yeah. shot looking down at her yes. face, yes, her expression in that shot two hours later. Yes, I mean I just thought, how did she get there? It's amazing.
2: Yeah. Well, she's brilliant. I mean, whenever she was around, we were like, Catherine Keener's here, you know. We were so excited. Uh, I've been such a gigantic fan of hers. I loved Walking and Talking, but was a very inspirational movie for me. And and I, the second we mentioned her name to Steve Carell, he was like, I love captain Keener. And and I, and I thought, oh well, then that's the perfect person for this movie because I wanted to be somebody that he is you know blown away by.
1: Got it. Got it. Working with your family, um, working with your wife Leslie Mann, who is a wonderful actress. Um, who is both smart and funny seems like you have something in common um what 's that like um and particularly in scenes like you 've got scenes of intimacy, how you handle that, but you also have scenes that are really intense scenes of confrontation. How do the two of you work? Is it any different from working with actors that you don 't happen to be intimate with i mean it 's uh you know it's it's it 's where we get
2: along best is doing that work she she loves a great scene and she wants to go there and fully commit and go hard whether it's comedically or emotionally it doesn't matter how light or dark she's just very committed and enjoys the work and is a truth machine No, she's the person that'll say you're not going far enough or this isn't believable whenever i make anything leslie is the last person to see it because she will point out every moment she, she doesn't believe the acting or anything that just feels off. And uh, for instance, with The King of Staten Island, the opening scene is him driving in the car with his eyes closed. And it lets us know that he has this suicidal ideation and he has a lot of problems. But it used to happen 20 minutes into the movie off of a different scene. And for months, she kept saying, that should open the movie. Why, why are you not opening the movie with that? And I was locked into my progression that I had written. And I said, no, Leslie, it doesn't, it doesn't work there. It doesn't work there. And she's like, you're totally wrong. I'm like, no, because it, it sets up this other thing and it has to come off of this. And, and, and it, it's not kind of wild enough to start it. And, and it just will freak people out or whatever I was saying. And I just fought her for three months. And I never did it. And I never even did it in editing with my editor secretly to see if it worked. Wow, And then I kept showing the movie and the movie wasn't working in the first act. And then one day I said to the editor, can you just reorder it? And let's see. And then the whole movie worked better. Literally it changed everything everything about the entire movie. Uh, So she just likes uh, the work. And when we work together, you know, we're collaborating from the moment we have an idea and uh, you know, she's helping me with the outline and the script and she's, uh, you know, always saying, well, you're showing this scene from the male point of view. You don't have the female point of view here or the scene that points out the other position. And she's always great about helping me invent
1: all those moments. When do you know you've got it? When do you say, we don't have to do it anymore? And I'm interested in, in fact, working with her when she might, or when an actor says to you, I, I, I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. What do
2: you do? I, I tried to schedule the movies so that I have enough time. So when I did the 40 old Virgin, I had 40 days. I probably did the, the Pete Davidson movie in 50. And because I'm not rushing, it's when we did The Big Sick, which Michael Showalter directed, that was a 25-day shoot. I mean, how incredible he is to have gotten that in 25 days. You know, One of the things I do is I have enough time to do a fair amount of takes and to tell the actors and actresses Uh, you know, don't stress, you know, we're going to do this for a while. We're going to play because I feel like people do a much better job when they feel like they are going to have a bunch of runs at it, especially with improvisation. If they think they have two, they're in a panic and they won't do good work. And so a lot of it is about having enough
1: time. Well, unfortunately we only have like three or four more minutes. Um, I want to talk a little bit about one other subject, which I know is dear to you and, and that is music and when music becomes part of your process? Um, I know you've even made a documentary about musicians, and um, so obviously it's deep for you. When does it become, and where do you use it, and how do you make your decisions about it?
2: I usually have some sense of a musical style for the movie before I start. So with This is 40, there was this song by Fiona Apple she did, Called I'm So Sleepy was on a benefit album. I think it was a child wrote the lyrics and then she made a song out of it. And I love the sound of this Chris Steele mandolin that was on it. And John Bryan produced it. And so I had John Bryan and <laughs> composed the score. Chris Steele did a lot of mandolin on it. And we used a bunch of Fiona Apple songs. So that song, I I thought, oh, that's the sound of the movie. This song. The same thing happened with the song, uh, Gray in L.A. by Loudon Wainwright, and the song Daughter by Loudon Wainwright. Um, uh, Peter Legved wrote that song. I I saw Loudon perform it, and I thought, oh, this is the sound of the movie. So then Loudon and Joe Henry did the score. And with this movie, I knew that Pete loved Kid Cudi, and that he had been very important in his life because he, he wrote a lot about mental health issues and struggles he had. And when Pete was young, listening to Kid Cudi express himself, made him feel better it made him feel less alone so we knew we wanted to use a lot of his music so the opening and the closing of the movie are kid cudi songs but we also thought how could we make the whole score feel like that type of rap music so we hired mike andrews Uh who's done a lot of scores for me like bridesmaids and freaks and geeks
1: let me worked with
2: a bunch of producers on creating a sound that feels like rap music
1: got it my last question which is, um, what's the worst part of directing for you? And if you say it, what's the best part of directing for you? What's the worst and what's the best? The the
2: only bad part about directing uh, is, you know, the moments when you think you don't have it and wonder if you never will. You know, the moments when you doubt yourself and you get scared, they're terrifying and hopefully you don't have too many of those because my the only pain i ever get is thinking i might screw the whole thing up that's my terror or thinking someone can make me screw it up like if someone else could force me to make a change i don't want to make that's the thing that uh, would uh melt me down and then the best thing about it is the moments of inspiration whether it's alone writing or writing with friends and coming up with something that makes you really happy or seeing people that you believe in nail it or invent something themselves you know giving people opportunities i really like working with young people because i like to see the moment they figure out who they are and figure out how to express their point of view and to me that's the most fun part of the process
1: well judd listen you are a fun part of our process and we're very grateful you took this time i uh, looking forward to Seeing you in person and also the next creative moments that you do either in confinement or out of it. You're an inspiration. (laughs) And uh, on behalf of the Directors Guild, thanks very much for doing this. Thank you
2: very much. Uh, Be well. Be well, everyone out there. Take care. See you uh, soon. I'm never leaving the house, but uh, I hope you get to.
0: (laughs) That wraps up this exclusive discussion with Judd Apatow. If you'd like to hear more from the Craft of the Director series, check out episodes 258 and 259, which feature director Ron Howard discussing his extensive filmography. Or visit our YouTube page to find discussions with David O. Russell, Leslie Glatter, and Guillermo del Toro. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.